folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to the Daily Evolver. Today, I am joined once again, and I'm very happy about it, by my dear friend and neighbor, Steve McIntosh. Hey, Steve, how you doing, man? Hi, Jeff. Good to be with you again. Thanks for having me on your program. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful uh, day here in, in Boulder. Beautiful early summer day, just perfect. And yeah. Through the magic of Zoom technology, uh, it may see the, seem like Steve and I are talking right next to each other, but actually we are hundreds of feet away. <laughs> Stone's throw. Yeah, exactly. Steve's my neighbor, so it's really cool. So anyway, uh, it's, uh, it feels like a nice topic today for, it, for an afternoon because it's, uh, uh, it's, it's just a, a little bigger topic. It, it, it's a contextual topic. And we want to talk today about uh, the history of integral thought. And I love the topic because, first of all, I don't really know that much about it. I haven't, I, or, or at least I don't feel like I've downloaded it. And to the degree that I do, it really helps me to ground myself in what I'm doing and what we're doing in terms of moving a, you know, a, a stream of thought forward that actually has a history and has building blocks and has really cool people. And um, you have been uh, my best teacher in all of this. And, and I would say that that started with a chapter in your first book called Integral Consciousness, which I love. Uh, and you laid it out with pictures and it was all cool. And, you know, all, and, uh, but that was three books ago. I imagine you've done some thinking about it since. Uh, but, uh, so let's just get into it. And, and so we'll start with, you know, some just general orientation of what is integral philosophy and how can we uh, sort of chart its movement and evolution indeed. Sure. Well, certainly whatever integral is, it's more than philosophy. Um, from my understanding, you know, integral is a label, among others, it's probably the leading label um, for an emerging stage or structure of consciousness, right? And so when we talk about structures of consciousness, according to the theory itself, we're also necessarily talking about structures of culture, right? Social structures of history, if you will. And um, so the, the question of what is integral? Um, begins by saying it, it's a sort of worldview. And, and there's lots of different ways of thinking about culture, uh, many different sources of culture. But worldviews as these sort of structures of agreement that have a, a systemic uh, uh, self-organizing element to them, they, they exist primarily in this intersubjective realm. Of course, they penetrate our minds and they penetrate the objective world. But... Uh, What's so significant about worldviews, what makes this frame so powerful for, as a sort of foundation for integral, is that we're, we're for the last 300 years of, of human civilization, the most significant thing that's happened to us, of course, is the birth of modernity, right? Modernism, the, the orange meme, as it's sometimes referred to, right? Um, and, and this, of course, uh, has changed humanity uh, in ways that we're, we kind of take for granted. We don't really appreciate what living in modernity means compared to what it would be like. I know you just that. turn the spigot and the water runs. <laughs> yeah. And turn yeah. On the light. And of course, you know, many of us are focused on overcoming modernity's pathologies, right? Environmental degradation, 
nuclear proliferation, inequality, all these things that have, have been the downsides of modernism. But if we ask what modernism is, I think the best answer is it's a worldview, you know, more than anything else. And so since modernity emerged 300 years ago, uh, the question is, well, modernity is a worldview that, that comes after, right, the traditional worldview and the pre-traditional worldview. I mean, there, there seems to be this evolution by steps or stages in culture, although there's lines and it's all very messy. We don't want to talk about a linear history. But, but there is one thing that, yeah. as I was reviewing your chapter, that I really loved, and I just want to put it in here in case you aren't, and that, it, that is when you talk about modernity. Uh, there was a sort of a, a proto-modern blast into the planet back with the Greeks. And you talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things they did was they differentiated philosophy from spirituality. And so philosophy, that was really the birth of philosophy. And it's sort of, you know, the Dark Ages come in and it got buried and then it's revived. And, uh, but I love that because that's, you know, you, I guess it's not, you know, specifically integral uh, history, but it's the history of philosophy. And so I thought it was sure. a great and, and of course, that's, you know, other people who dispute that. So it's important to, um, to uh, put a little context on that. But so I'll, I'll hey, get I'm that. just quoting Steve McIntyre. I'll get to that in just a second. All right. All right. So, so, okay. So integral, it's this way of seeing, it's a perspective, right? It's, it's a theory, it's a worldview, it's a stage of consciousness. It's all these things. Um, but it, you know, at its root, it shows many parallels to the birth of, of modernism, right? So in other words, modernity came about through all kinds of different, you know, science and the, the Reformation and all, the Renaissance, all those things. But one of the primary uh, uh, catalysts of modernity was a, a new philosophical viewpoint, right? That, that philosophy started to become independent of religion. It could think independently. And then you have this series of geniuses, right? Bacon, Descartes, Locke, uh, and, and all of these famous philosophers who sort of contributed to what's known as the Enlightenment, right? The birth of modernity in the 16 and 1700s. And what's interesting, getting back to your point about the Greeks, all the major religious civilizations had influential and brilliant philosophers, right? So we can certainly see philosophy in ancient Islam, in ancient China, uh, you know, in ancient India, of course. And those all are uh, legitimate philosophers who need our recognition. But what makes the Greeks kind of stand out from that list of, of, of the philosophies of antiquity is that I think more than these other great civilizations, even though they had geniuses who came into a kind of a rational perspective and, and began to look scientifically at the world, the Greeks did it with, um, uh, with, with more success and, and the proof of that is that uh, the Greek, ancient Greek philosophy continues to be extremely influential in the philosophy of the mainstream developed world, right? much more so than any of the other philosophers. And it might be just because of Western bias, but you know, the West is the root of modernity, so we have to give credit to the Greeks. And I think that what, what's most interesting about the Greeks is that because their, their, um, their spirituality was extremely mythic, right? They're, it wasn't well developed. I mean, compared to like the Jews, right? They're no, just blasted out of Jerusalem and Athens as the major uh, contributors, right, to Western civilization. And so the Jews had a very well developed religion, and the Greeks, their religion was pretty pathetic by comparison. 
and yet their philosophy uh, well, 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 wait, wait a second, Steve. I mean, wouldn't you say that, I mean, pathetic, but, and I get it, but uh, basically a stage earlier. It, it was uh, superheroes. It was red. It was, you know, yeah, right. it wasn't gods even, in the you know, sky. So, so, I mean, again, that's the, anyone, we're skimming across the surface here. And, uh, but, 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 but in a way that makes it all the more amazing that this blast of modernity comes out of this mythic you know, thing, right. and anyway. Right, right. So the Greeks, beginning with what's known as the pre-Socratic philosophers, began to ask the questions rationally and scientifically. They were the first to, in some ways, or among the first, to kind of try to part the veil of myth and say, what is it that's real, right? From without any fanciful, uh, uh, they, they could see beyond it. And so they begin to ask questions about the nature of, of reality. And this led to this series of, of philosophers known as the pre-Socratics. Um, for our purposes, the most significant of them was a, a, a Greek philosopher named Anaximander. And he's really credited as the first to recognize evolution. He could see that the world was the process of becoming. Right? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, so now there's a you know, very dim view of what we understand of evolution. What was, was name? what was his An name? Anic Anaximander. 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 Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah. And so, of course, then the golden age of ancient Greece, we have these geniuses, right? Three in a row, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. You know, one, two, three. In terms of uh, Socrates being Plato's mentor, and Plato being so Aristotle's mentor. And perhaps more than any other, you know, Plato was, in a sense, uh, the avatar of modernist consciousness, right? Him and Aristotle really brought this rational consciousness to bear like it had never been unveiled before. And that led to this philosophy, which is, you know, very important foundation for Western civilization, right? And so, of course, the proto-modernist consciousness of the Greeks was not sustainable. It went under the waves of history. Um, you know, you see some of it carried forward in the Romans, for sure, but with the, with the death of antiquity and the Dark Ages, all that was lost. The recovery of it is sort of what began the rebirth of Western civilization, right? It was the recovery of the, the, the wisdom of antiquity and the sort of scientific proto-modernist consciousness that they had that... You know, um, so like logic, mathematics, the idea of... Engineering, yeah, yeah. yeah of, of understanding the world in its own terms, not just through the mythic books and legends. Right. And, 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 and beginning to not only to, to distinguish science from philosophy, but, but being able to identify branches of science, like physics, biology, you know, mathematics, mm -hmm. that's not really a branch of science, but, but they were definitely differentiating in all kinds of very interesting and precocious ways. Wow. So, so then, uh, how many, so then we, we have this uh, re restoration, uh, when? And how long was it lost? Well, uh, you know, there, there were parts of, for example, Aristotle, that were known to the medieval uh, uh, thinkers, like for example, St. Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s was very much aware of Aristotle, but a big part of the canon of Greek understanding was much more preserved by the, uh, by the ancient Islamic civilization. And so in 1453, when the Ottoman Turks sacked Constantinople, Many of the, uh, uh, of the scholars who were part of the Byzantine em Empire fled to the courts of Europe and brought with them in many of these Islamic translations of the ancient Greeks. 
And so there was a sort of um, seeding, watering of the seeds of wisdom that occurred. Wow. In the, that was a major catalyst of the Renaissance, right? Which then had to create the Reformation before we could make way for the Enlightenment, right? But yeah. the whole... Well, that's good. That helps me. Right? Because yeah. I, I'm also thinking that's when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, you know, right. late 1400s. The, the age of discovery that was a, 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 a kind of an offshoot of the Renaissance. Yes. Definitely. Okay. Okay. So, so cool. I think that um, that the the structure of evolution that we recognize not only in the uh, periodic table of elements and the biological tree of life, but also in a in a vague way within human history, that this I don't think it's predetermined, but I do think that we can observe what what are, what I like to call harmonics. So when you you know in, in the in musical harmonics when you hit a note then you, you can often hear faint traces of the notes that are above it on the scale, right? Like the fifth above it. And, and so that's a very interesting and, and spiritually uh, uh, intriguing proposition about uh, the basic vibration of music. And I think we can see something very similar in the evolution of consciousness in the sense that, um, that uh, the higher harmonic, right, of integralism can be seen within modernity, right? Modernism, and it's right at its birth shows proto-examples of both postmodernism and this integral stage that comes after postmodernism. And we can see it in Hegel. Now... All right, so in, Hegel. So, yeah, so in, in the book, right, in, in my chapter seven, in part mm -hmm. two of integral consciousness, I have a 45-page history, uh, intellectual history, of the founders right. of integral philosophy. As right. I call it. And, um, you know, I think many of these people can be traced. I think we can make arguments as to why they are um, uh, significant, why we can name hundreds of people. There's many different lines that converge in the integral. But um, I think that, that the most significant line of it is in this understanding of evolution. What is the meaning of evolution? Not just the recognition of the fact of, of the descent with modification of the species, but the fact that the universe is evolving and what does that mean? What are the spiritual implications of that? That in some ways is sort of the root of this integral understanding because modernism was born before evolution was understood. And it was only really when evolution started to be realized, that's kind of what brought about these proto understandings of integralism, right? So Hegel is among a school of philosophers, the idealist philosophers, including Fichte and Schelling and other important philosophers, and they were reacting to, in some ways, the culmination of modernist philosophy in Kant, right? Their, their goal of the idealist was to try to complete Kant's system. There he is. Uh, I have a picture of, uh, this is a, the famous portrait of Hegel. I have a picture of him on the wall in my house. And I people, know, your house is so cool. You people have all come these in philosophers. And they say, well, who is that? And I say, well, that's a Halloween decoration. It scares away the little kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, but but he was he was a really good thinker not right. not a yeah, not a looker but a good thinker and his his first book and i think his most significant book was published in 1807 okay uh, and that was called the phenomenology of spirit and you know hegel was just sort of this giant meteor of genius in history right i mean even though he was surrounded by others even though evolution was really first realized in um in the uh around the same time as creative evolution of, of um, phenomenology of spirit by Lamarck, right? Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, 
But he was looking at species and he was being very scientific and he didn't think there were any spiritual implications to evolution whatsoever, right? Hegel really didn't even concern himself with the evolution of, of species. Uh, he was more concerned about the evolution of history, right? The unfolding of history, which he kind of framed as the movement of spirit in the world, right? And so from the very beginning, one of the things that Hegel was most concerned about was the, the, the structure process of evolution, right? Which he described as a, this dialectic, the dialectic of development, um, where there is, there's something, there's a kind of a stage or a, 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 a condition of history. And in order to break out of that condition, there's forces that move beyond it that, 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 are, um, that can't deal with the internal contradictions within that. They move beyond it and um, they kind of negate it. There's a negation of, of the condition and a kind of a protest against it. But then that creates a tension which itself brings about um, a, a negation of the negation, as you call it. In other words, a, um, a, a, a moderation of the, of the antithesis, of that which is kind of moving away, that tries to preserve the best of both and carry them forward, even in a sense preserve the conflict to a degree. So it's, it's complex and deep, and in, in some ways deeply profound. So if Hegel would say things like, the truth is merely the dialectical movement, you know, which, which I just appreciate so much wow, because that's he's fantastic. talking about truth as a direction of evolution. Yes. You know? Yes. And, and the fact that he was so... Um, and truth, truth itself evolves yeah. through that process. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Later, Roy Baskar would call it dialectic pulse of freedom. You know, like freedom pulses and it breaks mm, out, right? Beautiful. Yeah. So... Anyway, this, this, this concern with both the process and the structure of how spirit moves in the world and brings about these stages which, you know, contradict each other and then resolve each other, this was a giant genius move by Hegel. And it, it completely rocked the Western world, right? For several decades after Hegel. He, he, was, he was convincing. Yeah, he was not only convincing, he was compelling. Right? <laughs> and, um, you know, although it, eventually people, critics arose, you know, like Kierkegaard and, and others who, it, it is, you know, the, the Hegel was in some ways both the completion of modernity and the, 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 the um, transcendence of modernity through this kind of proto-integral move. And we're talking again early 1800s. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, between 1807 when he published his first book until 1831 when he died. So... Hegel, of course, brings about a revolution in philosophy um, that, that, that soon his followers are divided into a left wing and a right wing, right? The left wing becomes Marxism and the right wing, I mean, according to some, becomes fascism, right? So, you know, Hegel's imprint on human history is, is uh, hard to overestimate. But um, there was also ways in which it couldn't be sustained. You know, it was too fantastic. It was too metaphysical, right? It was too authoritatively proclaimed. And so, uh, you know, he didn't reach all the way down to the ground in certain ways, right? So um, that's why we can't describe integral philosophy as, as strictly Hegelian, or maybe not even in the line of Hegelian philosophy, right? There are some neo-Hegelians. There are some professional academic philosophers who, are, who call themselves Hegelians, but it's very niched out. I mean, by and large, he's been tremendously influenced, influential, but his philosophy is kind of not very, not a living philosophy at this point, mm -hmm. in this way. So then, of course, we have the turbulent 19th century where Hegel's view of evolution uh, as a, a process of, of historical development in human society 
is then um, itself significantly impacted by the discovery or the sort of the proof of biological evolution, right? Lamarck had posited it, but he didn't have a mechanism, right? And, you know, the giraffes got their long necks by stretching, right? Lamarckian evolution. That was wrong, right? So Darwin and at the same time, Alfred Wallace, they recognize that it's, uh, um, it's, it's mutation followed by natural selection and that this provides this very satisfying process, at least for those who are looking for a, a satisfying modernist creation story. It seems to explain things in such a beautiful way that there's no need for religion. And that was really why Darwin was so, was so influential and popular. I mean, not only was his theory interesting and, and good and scientific and not only to make a significant contribution to history, but his contribution to the overthrow of religious authority was far more significant than his actual theory of natural selection. They, they still don't really like it. <laughs> um, so, all so right. So then, this is now when 1859 is okay. uh, on. All right. Uh, so you know, pre-Civil War over here, and right. so this going on over there. All right. right. So okay. So throughout the 19th century, uh, we had uh, this, this, what's now framed as Victorian evolutionism. Right, which was kind of used for the purposes of justifying colonialism. Right, one of the major proponents of this evolutionism, which combined the evolution of, of history with the evolution of life, um, was Herbert Spencer, right, the founder of the Economist magazine. Um, oh, really? Did you give me one of his pictures? No. Spencer was the guy who coined the term "survival of the fittest," and hmm. he's really, in some ways, the father of social Darwinism. Right, which is very dark. Uh, a turn in you know, this idea of cultural evolution. And um, so uh, by the, the turn of the 20th century, there were many sensitive people who began to think that not only was colonialism immoral, but these theories of evolution, which sort of tried to reduce uh, uh, the, the, the unfolding of human civilization as some kind of turn crank material process that was just, you know, going inexorably forward like biological evolution, right? So a huge uh, um, uh, contributor to, to integral philosophy, uh, the sort of the next great person that I mentioned in the book and this picture I uh, put up will do so is Ari Bergson. And there he is. There he is. Yeah, looking like a good Victorian himself. So Bergson's book, Creative Evolution, came out exactly 100 years after Hegel's uh, Phenomenology of Spirit. Right? His, book, his book kind of, many people at the time, especially people who had a spiritual orientation, were sort of in despair over this highly materialistic account of human origins and this dethroning of any, any kind of spiritually fragrant creation story. And what Bergson did is he sort of brought back, back spirituality to evolution and actually realized that, that what we now are coming to find, what they were in 1907, coming to find out about evolution was, in fact, a tremendous um, spiritual teaching, right? And, and so Bergson was, um, you know, very, very easy to read. He was very lively. One of his major points was instead of being analytical, we need to use our sort of intuition to intuit the whole Right, he sort of recognized that the entire universe was a, a process. Right? He hmm. called it durée or duration. Right, like so that as everything is moving, and so even matter is just sort of habituated experience. And so he had a kind of radical wow. process view of of reality. And he's most famous for his, his idea of elan vital, right, or the vital spirit, life force. Um, 
which of course um and, uh, and where was he writing and when again he's a frenchman and he wrote uh around the, the turn of the 20th century okay now. all right and then the this most significant book which is called creative evolution was published in 1907 okay is he so, a priest is that a priest caller i'm seeing no in that picture okay no no that's just bad stuff okay. no it's a nice caller <laughs> Um, so, so Bergson was a philosopher, uh, you know, he was of Jewish origin, he was an atheist, but in his later life, he, he converted to Catholicism. Hmm. And Interesting. Uh, uh, he um, had this fantastic spiritual view of evolution, and, and he's really fun to read, uh, even though he, not many people know of him in the integral movement, he's not talked about quite very much, but he's nevertheless um, one of the major founders, primarily because uh, he had a significant influence on two of the major founders, which are uh, both Alfred North Whitehead and Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Even though Whitehead and, and Teilhard didn't really notice each other or read each other, or talk about each other, never mentioned each other, so we have to assume they didn't really know about each other, um, uh, they both were significantly influenced by Bergson and wanted to try to complete or extend Bergson's philosophy, right? So Whitehead, uh, of course, one of the great geniuses of history, independent of integral philosophy, he certainly recognized uh, as one of the great philosophers of all time. Because of his spiritual orientation, he gets sort of short shrift in professional philosophy, which has a fashion of atheism at the moment. Right. But I think in the 21st century, Whitehead will be far more appreciated than he was in the 20th century. In his yeah. Is that also true for Bergson? No, Bergson's not nowhere near as big a genius as Whitehead. I mean, but is he uh, recognized academically? Is he seen yeah, as part yeah, of Yeah, Bergson's in the canon of you know, mainstream philosophy, for sure. Right, yeah. right. Um, so Whitehead, his major work is called Process and Reality. That was published in 1929. And Whitehead was a, a, a neoplatonist, meaning that he was very influenced by Plato. But yet his, uh, his view of evolution was... Um, was, was he sort of tried to rethink the whole metaphysics of, of modernity in general, right? By instead of thinking of, of, of uh, in a Cartesian way, as you know, there's, there's, there's this extended realm of matter and there's this internal realm of mind, he kind of rejected all that. And he had a very consciousness-centric view of what the universe is, right? So he tried to think about reality as a process and it's impossible to try to summarize Whitehead in this context, but, but he, he talks about occasions of experience, that, that, that the, the, the reality consists of occasions of experience, which both you know, inherit the past and contribute to the future. But one of my favorite quotes from Whitehead, or it's not a quite, it's quite a quote, but it's an idea from Whitehead, and that is that evolutionary growth can best be understood as an increase in the capacity to experience what is intrinsically valuable. It's a very right. consciousness-centric definition of evolution. And yeah, say that again, is Steve. A growth in the ability to experience what is valuable. What is? Evolution. Evolution, okay. Yeah, yeah. Is, or is, evolutionary is, growth. Okay. Right? Meaning that he looks at it primarily as the growth of these, these um, uh, occasions of experience, the growth in those occasions of their ability to apprehend or receive intrinsic value, which he, of course, framed as goodness, truth, and beauty. Right, taking forward Plato's philosophy, but um, more so than Hegel or more so than, than Bergson, uh, Whitehead was a major proponent of goodness, truth, and beauty, and it, 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 it figures prominently in his philosophy. 
Mm -hmm. Because I'm also a a proponent of those primary values. I have a particular affinity for Whitehead. Um, But uh, uh, unlike Hegel or Bergson, Whitehead's philosophy continues to have life and vitality today. Mm -hmm. Um, I know know a little bit about it. And and here's how it has a vitality for me. Uh, And it's from a talk that Ken did, Ken Wilbur. And it, it, where he talked about that, that Whitehead talked just what you said, you know, that there's a, there's a moment and then there's a, a new moment that comes after it. And in the middle of that is an opportunity for novelty, an oppor- opportunity for creativity. Well, where freedom and, exists, where consciousness exists. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that, you know, that's that moment that makes it more complex than it was. And, um, and so I don't know, that feels like downloadable somehow into my psyche and into my way of life and, you know, just thinking about things. Right. So one of the things that's good, that's important to say is that I I think that um, people who want to, who aspire to be integralists, who want to make meaning at this emergent stage of of consciousness, that that, that the key thing about what makes this different from what came before is that it contains a new truth, right? Integral frame, the integral perspective has a new truth, which gives us new light and new power to understand the evolution of consciousness and culture, right? Yeah. And so so in, in order, if you want to grasp this truth and make it part of who you are, you got to do the practice, right? So the practice of this new truth involves learning and teaching, right? It's a, a metabolism of the value. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, and so that means that the, the, the key root of this new truth is in the philosophical line that contributes to integral philosophy. So this integral stage is more than a philosophy, as I said. Philosophy is a line that contributes to it. We can also identify psychology and science and religion and many other important strains that we're not talking about today. But it's, again, I just, this is what, part of the trunk line, so it's worth focusing on. Right. And, it, and, it's, and, and, and instead of being a philosophy, or merely a philosophy, what you would say it is, is a, a, a movement of history. Sure. Yeah. yeah like, right? uh, you know, the, like Hegel said, the movement yeah. of the dialectic. Yeah. So if we're going to do the practice and insert the truth, right, there's a certain amount of reading of these folks that is recommended, right? So people, a lot of times they ask me when I give a talk, well, can you give us a reading list, right? And so I mentioned some books, there's a reading list on my blog from a couple of years ago. But the, the, the reason that I, I wanna to try to talk about these, one of the good things is that I recommend that people go and they spend a little time reading about these philosophers. Especially now we have this, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy which is a really tremendous online resource that I think all integralists should know about and become familiar with because it's peer reviewed. It's generally excellent. It's, um, you know, not like Wikipedia or something. This is more serious academic philosophy and it's highly intellectual, but it's accessible to most people. And um, you could read about Hegel and Bergson free. They're online. Right. Right. Of course. And and this is the Stanford, what now? Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy. Got it. Just Google that, right? So, for example, reading Hegel in the original, that is rough going, right? I mean, it's worth doing just for fun, like skiing a double black diamond for the first time, you know? (laughs) (laughs) You might fall down, but what the hell, right? But when it comes to Hegel, there are plenty of interpreters of Hegel who make him a lot more clear. Um, For example, Robert Solomon is a contemporary philosopher. He just passed away, but he's got some tremendous kind of accessible but intellectually sophisticated descriptions um, you know, prior to the internet, we had Frederick Copleston, 
who has this giant uh, history, encyclopedic history of philosophy that's also worth reading. So Hegel's worth checking out, but unless you're really a gut for punishment, I wouldn't recommend reading it. <laughs> um, you know, Bergson's very readable, right? Whitehead, Process and Reality, another rugged text, right? Is but it? because Whitehead is living, he's got, you know, Latter-day interpreters who in some ways are more Whiteheadian than Whitehead, right? So that it carries on. It's a lineage and not just Whitehead himself. And of course, his, his primary uh, sort of student and the person who carried forward his philosophy uh, in the 20th century was uh, Charles Hartshorn, right? And he's definitely exciting to read and very, very good. Um, there's also John Cobb and David Ray Griffin. Uh, David Ray Griffin especially, um, I've gotten a lot of value out of his books. I kind of come to understand Whitehead through Griffin. Um, a book I can recommend uh, by Griffin is a book came out in 2000 called Religion and Scientific Naturalism, Overcoming the Conflicts. But Griffin's got, you know, 30 books. Uh, he's also got some baggage, but he was in 9-11, conspiracy theory. But just don't pay attention to that. And read what <laughs> happened before 2001, and you'll see some great, great thinking from David Ray Griffin that's thoroughly integral in many ways. Right on. Um, so then we have... Um, in the timeline, um, I also have to mention uh, Sri Aurobindo, or Aurobindo Ghost, who was, a, a, he was a, a giant intellectual, there he is. Um, he, uh, he, his book, um, let me see if I got some notes on this. Uh, he, his book, The Life Divine, um, was a, a major masterpiece uh, that came out in 1939, which talks about the evolution of consciousness by stages, integrates evolution and spirituality in some extremely powerful ways. Um, you know, and Aurobindo is, of course, a venerable sage who we honor to this day. Um, yeah, is, for those of you listening, he's sitting in a big armchair with an a, 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 a Indian sash. He's uh, in yes. a beard. And he's a, Looking he's, very he's, much like in, the Indian guru. guru. Climb the mountain. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so, so Aurobindo, you know, he, was, he was significantly influential in that his followers founded the, the California Institute for Integral Studies, CIIS, right? He refers to his, uh, his kind of thinking or his practice as integral yoga, right? So he's one of the first adopters of the term integral. Um, it was around the same time that um, the, the Harvard sociologist Pitterim Sorokin also started talking about his philosophy as integral, right? And he has stages of evolution and consciousness and culture. And so Sorokin is another one of those you know, important people that we'd want to list if we were making a list of 100 most influential founders of political philosophy, but he's not among the top eight uh, that we're focusing on here. So Aurobindo is, is good, but of course, Aurobindo, he, his book, The Life Divine, it's a giant fat tome, and he just proclaims the truth like an all-knowing guru. He doesn't cite anybody. He doesn't mention Hegel. He doesn't mention Bergson. He doesn't mention the evolution of history in any significant way. His main concern is recovering panentheism in the face of Advaita Vedanta non-dualism, right? So he's in conflict with um, uh, Ramana Maharshi, who was his contemporary, who dismissed Aurobindo as just the kind of a foolish guy. He had disdain for Aurobindo. And Aurobindo had disdain for Ramana Maharshi too, <laughs> primarily because they have completely different ontologies, right? So, so Maharshi's a non-dualist, and uh, coming from uh, Shankara, right? And um, uh, of course, uh, in the Hindu lineage, Sri Aurobindo finds his root in uh, Ramanuja, 
who's a the ancient Hindu sage from a thousand years ago, who was a, a panentheist, not a, a pantheist or a non-dualist, right? Well, so yeah. Was, so give us the difference between these two, the non-dual and the panentheist, right? Right, right. So, so, so non-dualism, you know, again, I can't summarize it. Please forgive me, but, but it's that it all. It's oh, just all Steve, let's just pause. Just transmit it to us. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, right. talk, tell us about it. Non-duality is an umbrella term, which uh, uh, is a, um, a description of ultimate reality that arises in different spiritual lineages, primarily in Buddhism, and in the, uh, the non-dual branch of Hinduism, known as Advaita Vedanta. It's also realized independently by other mystics and other religions, example, ancient Sufi mystics, ancient Christian mystics. A lot of it comes from the deep spiritual experience of the unitive experience, or samadhi. Right? When you have samadhi, you get a direct experience of non-duality that makes you feel like that's what's really true, and I can understand and I'm sympathetic to that, right? Yep. That, that, that's an aversion or an overlap with this idea is what's known as pantheism, which means is that everything is God and God is everything and it's just one thing. Panentheism recognizes a, a, a philosophical separation, but it's not entirely dualistic, right? So under panentheism, we can have a, an infinite and a finite or an absolute and a relative. And it's, it's accommodated philosophically because whatever spirit is, the absolute, is not only transcending the, the finite realm, it's also permeating it from within. So pantheon mis, means is, is that you know, God is both everything and within everything and beyond everything. Again, these are very technical uh, philosophical terms, you know, and, and I'd actually have to prep to do an academically um, you know, appropriate right. off-the-cuff definition. But you get the basic idea, right? Well, with panentheism, we, uh, if it, to the degree that it includes the relative realm, it's like God is in every living thing, particular, in a particular well, way, yes. right? Well, as well as there being the absolute realm that contains everything and is the pure unity. Right. And both of these exist at the same time. Right. So I unpack this quite a bit. I write several chapters about this in my book, The Presence of the Infinite, that people want to know about panentheism and pantheism and non-duality and uh, theism and all that. So Aurobindo, we just want to give him a tip of the hat and say that he, he was one of the early adopters of the term integral. His, his philosophy is, is, I think, completely integral. You know, he kind of tapped into integral consciousness. He clearly read Hegel. He had a Western education. He was educated in England. So he knew about the heritage of Western civilization. But because he doesn't, you know, connect up what he's talking about, he does have a sort of freestanding existence. And... Um, while, so for example, he did have a significant impact, like in India, there's a city dedicated to, or sort of an ashram that's built out called Oroville, that's still a retreat you can go to today. Um, but most of the people who are followers of Aurobindo in this time in history regard him in a, in a kind of traditional way. They, so he's the guru and they're conforming to him. And so that's why he's sort of dead in the water philosophically, right? So... Aurobindo's really, you know, counts. And the reason that Aurobindo counts, uh, well, pause that. Next, I want to mention Pierre Thierry de Chardin. And he's one of my sentimental favorites. I was uh, very much taken by Thierry de Chardin in the 1980s before I even read Ken Wilber. And that is a caller on him. He was definitely a Catholic priest, but he was also a, um, a paleontologist. He spent a lot of time in China working on uh, the, the, the Peking Man, as it was called, uh, and, and he did a lot of significant work in science, 
He's also a uh, ambulance driver in World War One. I. I mean, he has a heroic life. And some friends of mine are trying to produce a movie about him because he's oh, really cool. Yeah, features that are that are very very cool. But but Teilhard de Chardin is one of the most potent founders of integral philosophy because many of the major components that make integral significantly transcendent of both modernity and postmodernity, it comes from the genius of Teilhard de Chardin. And so, for example, he posits the idea that, um, that, the, that the emergence of, of humanity has created a new layer of evolution, right? So there's the, the evolution of matter, which he calls the physiosphere, the evolution of life, the biosphere, and then this new layer of evolution, right, the, which he calls the neosphere. You know, he and a, a small group of, uh, of folks, also uh, Vernadsky, mentions the term, kind of, you know, gets depressed before Teilhard with the term. But, but it's, it's the, we, we can definitely say that that neosphere is something that we can associate uh, authentically with Teilhard de Chardin and his genius. So uh, matter, then life, then, then thought, mind. consciousness. Yeah. Consciousness, okay. consciousness, yeah. So... Um, Teilhard, because he was a Catholic priest and because his views of evolution were um, um, not, you know, in keeping with uh, Catholic orthodoxy, was prohibited from publishing his work, right? You know, they, they, and so even though he, many of these ideas he came to at the same time as Whitehead and Aurobindo, his primary book, um, the, the Phenomenology of, of, of the Phenomenon of Man, or Le Phenomenon Humain, uh, uh, pardon my French, my, my destruction of that French title, but the, the phenomenon of man, as it's known in English, came out in 1955, right after Teilhard's death. He gave the manuscript to a friend, and as soon as he was no longer, you know, subject to the control of the Catholic Church, they published it, and it was a huge sensation, and uh, really got the mainstream's attention, both in terms of praise for it, but also, uh, you know, uh, disdain, you know, condemnation of it. Right, because he was a scientist, because he was talking about you know the gospel of scientism, you know evolution, um, you know many people kind of said, oh, this this is this, this book should be burned, right? It's you know it's screwing people up, it's it's bringing them back to religion. And, and, and we're talking the critique from the modernist side, not from the modernist, right? Yeah, so not it, it probably a critique from his colleagues back at the church. Well. I think they kind of held their tongue a little bit. I, it was mostly from scientific materialism. Okay. Excoriated. But his influence is continuing. You know, he's influential, not just in philosophy, and certainly beyond integral philosophy. Um, and and uh, Teilhard de Chardin has influenced law. He's influenced literature. He's influenced sociology. You know, he, he's got a widespread influence, and he's definitely a, a, a major genius in his own right. Um, and what's he bring to the party? What's his... Well, okay, paragraph? So the idea of the newosphere, the oh, idea the, the newosphere, of, yes, yes, of yes. evolution being pulled forward by uh, the potential future of what he called the omega point. There's this kind of culmination of, of, of the brotherhood of man, you know, Jesus' teaching, that, that is a sort of perfection or a utopian culmination that, that is, is sometime in the future that is pulling us towards it. So it has a kind of gravity on us by its future potential. Um, another really... I love that. Yeah, the Omega no, yeah, yeah, I could feel that. Yeah, well, it's also, you know, it's been criticized as being deterministic, right? Like, oh, it's already, you know, the Omega point's already predetermined, right? But, but of course, he didn't want to take it that far. He definitely had a, a view of free will and rejected these idea of, of, you know, dialectical materialism, where it was just thought to come out by material unfolding. Um, so Teilhard also was very influential in his understanding of what he calls his theory of complexity consciousness. 
right? So what he posits is that as, an, as a, a structure, specifically an organism, becomes more complex in its body, it becomes more aware in its consciousness, right? And so there, this is the sort of the early understanding of interiority, right? So Whitehead had an understanding of interiority too. But Teilhard came at it from a different angle and talks about this, this idea of, of, you know, that his consciousness creates the complexity and the, the complexity creates the consciousness. So they're co-evolving together hmm. and that they're two sides of the same coin, right? And so that's very much contributes to Wilbur's conception later in, in this quadrant theory. So um, there's many elements of Teilhard. You know, again, we're, we're skimming over the top. I'm not mm -hmm. intending to provide a, a summary of any of these folks. But um, the next person I want to talk about is John Gebser, right? Okay. His book, The Ever-Present Origin, came out in 1953. And it, when he wrote about it, he was neither aware of Teilhard, whose book hadn't been published until two years later, or Aurobindo. But then in his second edition in 1966 um, uh, to the, the ever-present origin, Gebser in the preface says there have been two developments that I've become aware of that, that validate what I'm talking about and are very promising. And one is Sri Aurobindo and the other is Pierre Thierry de Chardin. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. And so, um, and, and, you know, like Peter and Sorokin and Sri Aurobindo, Jean Gebser comes up with this term integral and uses it in ways that are very familiar to modern ears, um, integral ears. Uh, and, and so the fact that he then finds these other people talking about it and validating what he's talking about from different angles begins to feel like we're all, we're all talking about the same thing now. There's this thing, right? So Gebser, unlike uh, Teilhard or Whitehead or Bergson or Hegel, Gebser's obscure. You know, he's very esoteric in terms of, the, he's not really recognized as a mainstream contributor to philosophy. He's not in the canon. Right? So if you go and look at, you know, the history of philosophy, you're not going to see his name. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, he's quirky, he could be dogmatic. Uh, but um, for, for integralists and for a, a core of people who are followers of Gibson to this day, Gibson is a very significant and creative and innovative thinker. And so Gibson, he intuits that in, in, you know, shortly before 1953, like during the war in, in the 40s, he intuits that soon there's going to be what he calls a mutation of consciousness, a new kind of consciousness. It's a new structure of consciousness that's about to appear, which he calls integral, right? And so that he's got the, um, you know, the stages that he names. Now, he's certainly not the first to do that. But I think he comes to recognize the stages independently of the other work in developmental psychology, which I'll come to here in a second. Um, but but Gebser says there's this new step. It's going to be called integral it's going, to, it's going to be able to, to transcend modernity. It's, it's going to have, while modernity is, is a perspective that's tied to the ego, this integral stage is aperspectival. It's not tied to any one of these stages and can see through the other stages, right? So he talks about how this, this integral epistemology, this ability to see these other stages of evolution in the interior of consciousness and culture, is brought about through what he calls diaphanous, translucent, the diaphaneity, that integral consciousness renders these previously opaque structures, you can see clear through them. You can see the values within them and you can see the, those values within yourself. So, I mean, Gebser's extremely prescient wow, that's understanding of, of integral consciousness and the fact that it's coming, right? In, in, in evolution, we can anticipate it. And so, again, there's a lot more to say about Gebser, but going over the top, 
Um, yeah, well, you know, that idea of, um, first of all, the ever-present origin. So it's, it's happening right now, you know, and, 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 and the nature of this next stage of being able to embrace, see through, you know, the, the previous stages. Right. At the, that's the emergent thing that is happening. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, again, I can feel that. And, yeah. and, and that's, that's really powerful. So, so, you know, Gebser certainly is a significant influence on Wilbur and on integral thinking to this day. Uh, and he's got his own lineage, you know, by his own right, even though it's, you know, kind of obscure. Um, you know, but at the same time, Gebser was, was wrestling against scientism, scientific materialism. He called these structures of consciousness and their unfolding. He said, it's not evolution. Well, I'm not talking about evolution. These are mutations in consciousness. Now, of course, you know, we can say to say, well, under a broader definition of evolution, we can include it. But I understand, you know, the, the, the sort of vice grip that he felt he was in and had to break out of. The other thing about Gebser, which is a, 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 a he, he, he was not prescient enough to recognize that beyond modernity, what comes next is not integral, but postmodern, right? And up until, I'm going to get to this very important point, up until about the late 90s, up until about 1995 or 1996, the fact that whatever comes after modernity is not integral consciousness, that was not understood. It was not understood by Gebser. It was not understood by uh, Robert Keegan. It was not understood by Wilbur, right? So even in sex ecology spirituality, Wilbur's major philosophical uh, masterpiece, he talks about post-modernity, but if you, if you follow his chapter on the stages, it goes from, he follows Gebser from modernism to internalism, right? And it was this sort of recognition that there's this kind of intervening postmodern state or stage or whatever it is that is, it has to occur before integral can, can emerge. That was a, a linchpin which brought about the, the, the current movement or the current phase of, of, of the integral worldview's development. So I'm going to come back to that in a second. But um, so Gebser couldn't see what that, that just thought that, you know, that, that in some ways, if you can, you can read him and say, there's so many things that he, he is able to predict um, or prophesize about integral, but many of those same descriptions also apply to postmodernism. So postmodernism and integralism were sort of clued together in his prophecy, um, and so you know that's where it's it's deficient. And so beyond Gebser, um, it's it, I sort of want to then begin to trace another line that's not philosophy. This line of developmental psychology that begins with James Mark Baldwin. Right, who wrote around the turn of the 20th century. And Baldwin had some very incredible insights. Um, yeah, there he is. Uh, he, 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 nobody's heard of Baldwin uh, because he was involved in a sex scandal and he had to leave the country. He was kicked out of American academia. Um, but uh, uh, he, so much of what we now understand about developmental psychology as, as, as talked about by uh, Jean Piaget or Lawrence Kohlberg or Claire Graves or any of the great developmental psychologists was almost all there in Baldwin. But the, the person who we recognize as sort of the father of developmental psychology is Jean Piaget, who wrote uh, about 20 years after, 30 years after uh, Baldwin. And he tries to pretend like he didn't read Baldwin. He didn't kind of get most of his thinking from Baldwin. But in fact, he did, right? He kind of ripped off Baldwin. Um, Who's this now? Jean Piaget. Oh, Piaget, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but nevertheless, he made a significant contribution. He experimented on his children. <laughs> right. 
in a kind of cruel way. I would say he's more famous than Baldwin. <laughs> yeah. Certainly and and well began to see that children go through these steps and that they reach, uh, you know, post-conventional consciousness or modernist consciousness, uh, concrete operating open. I can't remember all the details of his theory, but Piaget is just in some ways a major founder of developmental psychology. And the most prominent living developmental psychologist is Robert Keegan, who calls himself a neo-Piagetian. Piaget is his primary mentor, okay? And so this, this thinking about developmental psychology, which runs throughout the 20th century and continues to develop, ends up being one of the catalysts that helps the modern synthesis of integral um, go beyond Taylor de Chardin or beyond Gebser even, right? And so part of the way that developmental psychology gets integrated into integral philosophy is through Jürgen Habermas, right? Who's, who's a, a, a significant philosopher. He's 88 now, um, but he's a German professional philosopher uh, with a, um, a robust lineage. He's sort of the inheritor of the Frankfurt School which was a neo-Marxist school of philosophy in Germany um, that was influential in its own right. Um, he, his Marxism at this point is somewhat um, uh, ceremonial. You know, it's sort of just like for philosophical credibility in Europe, but he's primarily a, a modernist and a, a big proponent of the European Union. And, and he, in a sense, is an outlier in the sense that he's not, he's an atheist, so he's not really influenced by Bergson or Whitehead or Tehard. Um, you know, all, every philosopher is influenced by Hegel, but that's, you know, that's another story. But what makes Habermas uh, a, a de facto founder of integral philosophy is a significant influence he had on Ken Wilber. Because in his, um, in his philosophy, especially um, uh, his 1981 book, um, what's it called? Uh, Theory of Communicative Action, right? Which was followed in 1976 book, Communication and the Evolution of Society. He is, is, begins to understand that there's a loose connection between the evolution of psychology and the evolution of human history, right? And the, the linchpin that he relies on is Lawrence Kohlberg, who was in, in he was a developmental psychologist in the, the lineage of Piaget in his own way. Piaget was concerned about, you know, cognitive development. Um, Kohlberg was concerned about moral development, but they're both tracking the same stages, right? They're, they're similar developments, and of course, uh, Habermas really uses the weight of this, you know, intensely analytical professional philosophy uh, to, um, to, to try to make the case that the, the moral stages that Kohlberg is identifying have a rough uh, recapitulation or, or can be seen in the stages of history, you know, with modernity being really, he doesn't go beyond modernity, right? Mm -hmm. Modernity is sort of the current age that we're in, according to Habermas and just about, you know, all these other thinkers. And, and, but, but because he's got this very sophisticated philosophy, very validated by professional philosophy, and, and bringing in this, this combination of how one is influencing the other, how consciousness and culture are co-evolving, when Habermas is combined with Terry de Chardin and Whitehead in Wilbur's you know, grand synthesis in 1995, um, you know, it's sort of the, 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 the framing of what I call integral philosophy's, philosophy's 21st century synthesis starts to come together, right? It, but not complete. There's one more piece, right? So, Peter, uh, people who may be familiar with them, the, the, the management uh, thinker, uh, Peter Zengi, he has a famous book, came out in the 90s called The Fifth Discipline, where he talks about the DC 10, you know, the plane, and how there are these, these five technologies which made the DC 10 
this, this a, a major breakthrough. It was like head and shoulders above any other plane that came before. And it was because that when they brought about this fifth technology, all the other technologies came together and created a synergy. So the fifth technology, or you know, using this analogy of, of Peter Senge, that brought integral philosophy into the 21st century and really began the movement, made it exciting, was uh, this discovery that, that postmodernism was a stage, right? It seems obvious now, right? But again, up until about two, 1996, um, again, most of the thinking was we're trying to transcend modernity. Whatever transcends modernity is going to be holistic and wonderful, right? And we could feel, especially in the 90s, that that... Well, there's a lot of feeling of, of postmodern feeling about that. Sure. Uh, well, and then the birth of a new age, these yeah. things all kind of clues together, right? Right. So it was around this time, 1995, that um, the sociologist Paul Ray published his study of, um, of uh, it was a sociological study that was that had a grant funded. So he tried to do proper social science by getting the right numbers of people and, and like that. And he was able to find through his survey of American culture that there were three major blocks of culture, three major worldviews, which he called the traditionalists, you know, the moderns, and the cultural creatives. So he was really the first to popularize or frame the idea that this, this progressive culture wasn't just the warmed over remnants of the 60s. It was actually a new worldview that could be compared to modernity and traditionalism, right? So just like we can see at least two worldviews, the traditional worldview and the modernist worldview, here was framed, you know, it, it, it had come of age, this postmodernism, as we call it, green, had come of age on its own. And of course, you know, uh, Paul Ray was a uh, postmodernist, and so he glorified postmodernity as <clears throat> cultural creatives. There. Oh, I remember it was a it was a big book here in Boulder back in the time. Sure. I, back in the well, day. Before the book came out, very influential to me. Right, the book came out in two thousand, but the the research and the thesis of the book was published by the Institute of Noetic Sciences in nineteen ninety five. And I remember in my little new age community here in Boulder, uh, we all we were all excited about it. We could all feel that this was a breakthrough, and it was saying something that we already knew, it just hadn't been articulated, right? Yep. And, and we were one of the cultural creatives too, by the way. We were definitely yeah, yeah. In it, yeah. Then in nineteen ninety six, um, the work of Claire Graves um, was also published in the book Spiral Dynamics. Graves hadn't written any books. Uh, you know, his work was very obscure, but the book Spiral Dynamics kind of brought his thinking to life. There he is, Claire Graves, major founder of integral philosophy. And he was a, a psychology professor at a school in New York. Union right? College, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's an obscure uh, yeah. philosopher. And um, so, uh, so he was able to discern Green partially because he was following in the footsteps of Maslow, who was another developmental psychologist who's more concerned, you know, famous for his hierarchy of needs and, and not in terms of these stages, although he could certainly see and recognize that the, the hierarchy of needs corresponds to worldviews, but he didn't develop the idea very well. Graves wanted to provide empirical validation for Maslow, right? So Maslow was famous, but he didn't do any research, right? He just thought about Lincoln and his, his self-actualized friends and just it was very anecdotal, right? So Graves wanted to do some actual psychological, you know, empirical research to try to not only validate Maslow, but take Maslow further. And so his, he, did, he did all his research on college students, his students. And today, by today's standards of social science, that research is no good. It wouldn't have been counted as valid right now. And right. Lost, 
So it's shaking in terms of the research. What, what, what area are we talking about here again now? We're talking about Graves' empirical research to try to find the stages. I, of I, I know, but what, 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 what era? What, what oh, time? 60s and 70s. Okay. Yeah. So Graves, you know, he's a, he, as popularized by Don Beck and Christopher Cowan in the book Spiral Dynamics, the green worldview is, is not only shown to be, you know, described in, in detail in ways that are certainly still recognizable to this day, um, but there are stages beyond that that were also positive in spiral dynamics, right? So this spiral dynamics is a huge breakthrough. Even though if you read it, you know, it's kind of a hokey book. It's sort of masquerading as, you know, management theory or organizational development. I loved it. It's, it's, it's not philosophically Well, you know, all these other thinkers, these major professional hotshots were looking at it, and they were not able to see what Claire Graves could see with clarity. Graves had this unique view. He got it right in ways that many of these other thinkers, even Habermas, they couldn't see green, right? And, that, and that's still the majority of mainstream commentators and pundits can't see green either. They can see it, but they think it's just a religion or a scary ideology. They don't understand that it's a worldview that is what's next. Yeah, that is in the, you know, fully fleshed out as modernity and traditionalism and earlier right. stages. And later, Paul Ray. Actually, in the 2000 uh, edition of his book, Cultural Creative, says, you know what? My theory is actually explained much better by spiral dynamics. So even, um, even uh, Paul Ray kind of tipped his hat to spiral right. dynamics to be highly influential, right? And so I came across that book in 1999, started reading it, and was really um, very excited by it. Um, and then I uh, called my friend and was telling him about it. And he said, oh, you must be talking about Spiral Dynamics. I said, well, how did you know the title of the book? He said, well, I've got a copy of, of the galleys for Wilbur's forthcoming book called The Theory of Everything. And he adopts Spiral Dynamics and incorporates it thoroughly into his philosophy. And I said, oh, my God, that is so exciting. You know, Wilbur could see it, too. And up until then, I hadn't been, you know, I'd, I'd read Wilbur, but, you know, I, I kind of felt like he was a spiritual teacher and I wasn't down for his dharma. But when he adopted Spiral Dynamics, I, at the same time, figured, okay, this is the movement that I've been waiting for all my life. I kind of realized that this is what I've been called to participate in. And so this is sort of the birth of this integral movement around 1999, 2000. Uh, and, and this marks the beginning of the Integral Institute. Uh, and in the last decade, in the 2000s, this really was a movement, right? It was a market. It, was, it had big conferences. There were many different lines within it. Um, there was, pardon me, a journal. There was... Uh, the, the magazine, What is Enlightenment? So it wasn't just Will Berry and fan club, right? It was this vibrant movement that had many, many thousands of people interested in it. Just to place myself in it, I read Ken, I don't know what, in early 80s, whenever Up From Eden came out. And, uh, you know, I'd been knocking around Boulder for years and looking for a teacher and, and, and been in the, all my friends, you know, they had these gurus and stuff. And was, none of that really, you know, I, I couldn't find one. Mm -hmm. and, and yet I knew there was something that I wanted. And that book was like, wow. Which I, one? It, Up from Eden. Up from Eden. Uh, up from Eden. And, you know, I, I think the title says it all. I mean, I actually feel like I got... I often say I got 50% of my integral transmission when I laid eyes on it in the bookstore up from Eden. Oh my God, we've come up. Right. We're, we're, we're growing. We're, we're not fallen. Right. The we're, title is a microdose. 
Yeah, it was. It was, it, it was a turned out kind of macro, and it got me, you know, so I was alone, Ken Wilbright. I guess you were down the street, but who knew, you know? Uh, and um, it joined with the Integral Institute in 2000. Well, you know, here in Boulder, again, it was a heady time. Yeah. Um, you know, what was a movement uh, 10 years ago has kind of lost some steam. It's important to admit. Um, it's now kind of more of an intellectual community than a vibrant movement. A lot of this comes from um, lack See, of... I would disagree with that, Steve. I mean, you and I get together and consume perfectly legal substances in Colorado and talk about it. <laughs> you know, I don't want to necessarily get into it. That's fine. But if you think of where the integral movement was in 1995, what, you know, we read Sexology and Spirituality, where it was in 2003 when we started doing the Integral Institute seminars, and where it is now in terms of the number of people who are aware of it, interested in it, turned on by it, lit up by it, and also uh, whether or not they've heard of it, people who just have de facto integral thinking, you know, that we can see. Uh, it's, it, it's changed forms, but good Lord, it's, it's bigger and more vibrant than ever. Well, I'm, I'm glad you think that. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, I don't think this is the place to have that argument. I think there is some sociology about the difference between a movement and an intellectual community. Um, and and I, I don't think it's a huge put down to say that it's an intellectual community. You still have vibrancy, it's still growing in its own way. Um, well, it's an intellectual community that is, people are applying it in all kinds of interesting ways. Sure. In real well, life. let me say, I, I, like you, I have dedicated my life to participating in the worldview that comes after modernism, postmodernism. And I think that, that the work of Ken Wilber, the work of this other line of thinking that we've, we've talked about, many other contemporary uh, um, writers and, and activists who are in this cultural uh, space today, um, you know, all of us are, are contributing to it. And, and clearly, you know, postmodernity is not the end of history, right? I mean, there, there's something comes after it, whether it's going to take another 50 years or whether it's in the next decade, we don't know. But clearly at this point, integral is not rocking the world. And oh, it's, true. True. You know, but but yeah. it's gone from oh. microscopic to, you know. Yeah. Something. Well, and it, that may not take, again, we just want to make sure we're not magical postmodern thinking about 2012 regarding to, you know, oh, the global awakening. That's please. Online, right? There's a lot of that thinking that is in this integral movement, and we want to be uh, integral and be more skeptical and be more, you know, bring in some modernist consciousness to say, you know, big claims need big evidence. And so right now there's not big evidence that this thing, whatever it is, is going to be the next worldview that's historically significant in the unfolding of human civilization. But nevertheless, I definitely believe there's something beyond postmodernism. And, and I think that the integral, it's, it's got to be integral in, in, in a lot of ways. There's all these geniuses who've seen it um, in, in various dim ways. So I think we're on to it. Um, and do we just have to be loyal, uh, you know, uh, followers of the zeitgeist and see what we can do to contribute whether it emerges as historically significant in our lifetime or not is is not that important um it's more important that we make sure that we're loyal to it and that we work for it and we realize that our self-actualization is tied in with its actualization right on yeah um so let me just so, so then here we are yeah so so you know now i mean you know there Wilbur's book, Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, was a significant masterpiece of a philosophy book. 
in this period, uh, in the, 20, the 21st century, right, he's been writing primarily about uh, religion and spirituality, right? In 1990, uh, 2006 was uh, Integral Spirituality, and 2017 was The Religion of Tomorrow. He's also got the book on Trump, but he hasn't been focusing too much on philosophy per se, like we saw in Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality. And there are a lot of integral theorists and people working with integral, um, but, uh, you know, the, the philosophical line, um, you know, I don't want to, I think it's a little early to really identify who comes after Wilbur or what philosophers come after Wilbur. But I think there are, it is important to mention um, other thinkers who are very close to integral thinking who are worth reading um, for people. Hmm. Um, okay. One uh, is the philosopher Holmes Ralston. Uh, he was a Templeton Prize winner, uh, a big million-dollar prize for uh, work in, in spiritual philosophy. Um, and he's known as a father of environmental ethics, uh, Wilbur's theory of Hellenic ecology, which he uh, talks about in Sex, Ecology, Spirituality, comes directly from Ralston. Uh, and, and Ralston's 1988 book, for which he was awarded the Templeton Prize, is called Science and Religion, a Critical Survey. It's masterful. It's, you know, he's a major genius, right? And so I really recommend Ralston, even though he doesn't have developmental psychology, he doesn't have some of the, the those five, you know, disciplines that, that are part of the DC-10. He, he, he lacks this understanding of cultural evolution, or at least um, doesn't talk about it. But right. like his 2013 book, Three Big Bangs, you know, kind of echoes Terre de Chardin, when he talks about, the, of course, the first big bang of matter, the second big bang of life, and the third big bang of human consciousness. And, um, you know, he, he provides a lot of heavy lifting in terms of the science that really shows why these three things are uh, singularities or novelties that can't be explained. And, and so Ralston is one of my Fabulous. philosophers, uh, and, and I think he deserves uh, to be called integral, right? Um, of course, I mentioned David Ray Griffin, another, uh, you know, he's a Whiteheadian, um, but very astute, very insightful. Um, he's got a recent book that came out about panentheism, which we talked about, which I can recommend. So Griffin, for sure. Um, you know, we might also mention, you know, in, in the scientific genre, you know, Stuart Kaufman or Thomas Nagel, right? They're not thoroughly integral, but they're recognizing that the creativity of the universe, is, there's something significant about it that we don't understand, and we can't mm -hmm. explain it with materialism alone, right? So Now, are they getting any traction in academia? Uh, well, certainly Thomas Nagel, for sure. Yeah, Thomas Nagel is, is a prominent professional philosopher. And his book, Mind and Cosmos, which came out in 2012, was very much like Taylor. You know, he was bucking the dogma of scientism. And so he came in for scorn and repudiation and disdain. Burn that book, right? Because you can't question <laughs> the dogma, right? Uh, and, and even though, you know, Nagel's a, a very uh, well-respected professional philosopher and a staunch atheist, the fact that he says that, you know, the Darwinian explanation of evolution's got to be wrong, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, um, he's, he's a uh, heretic, right, in, in the religion of scientism. But again, Nagel's not really, you know, he's not in the direct line of interval, but a contributor. Right. I mean, a lot of people have mentioned Roy Baskar, who's recently deceased. Um, uh, his philosophy has contributed to critical realism. You know, it was kind of just the Marxist philosophy with some twists. But then late in his life, he took a spiritual turn and went back to his native India and kind of re-embraced Hinduism. So he's sort of a sentimental favorite among people who are um, you know, in that lineage. Mm -hmm. But I've seen him, before his death, I saw him speak in London and I've read his stuff and um, I'm not impressed. I don't think he really deserves to be uh, recognized as an integral philosopher. 
Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, some might argue, you know, reasonable minds may differ about that. Yeah, I don't um, know too much about him. Yeah, yeah, Baskar. But he's, his name might be thrown up there. There's also people you've never heard of who are nevertheless interesting contributors to Interworld. Um, one is Charles Johnston, right? Uh, so he talks about cultural maturity, and he's a series of books which are uh, definitely integral. He even uses the term integral, although he doesn't like Wilbur because he thinks Wilbur's too much of an idealist, too much in the, in the realm of Hegel. But Johnston's very smart, and his books are very good, and nobody reads them, and I think he deserves more attention than he gets. What's his name again? Charles Char- Johnston. Charles Johnson and, and Johnston, big- the T. Okay, and his big book is? Well, he's got a variety of them, but my favorite one is from 1990. It's called Necessary Wisdom. So I can, I can recommend that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are also many other authors and writers of books, you know, Alan Combs, and, you know, people who are familiar uh, on, within this integral intellectual community. Um, you know, but, I, you know, if you mention one, then you've got to mention all 10, and it's just too many to take on. Um, but I think it's important to realize that, that whatever integral philosophy is, it's not merely Ken Wilber's philosophy, although Ken is certainly a major contributor to it. And, and in my book, if I can just show it, Integral Consciousness and the Future of Evolution, um, I praise Wilbur, but also offer some constructive critiques to his philosophy. And that's how philosophy proceeds, is that, you know, it's a ladder of distinctions, right? So as soon as you say that's one thing it's true, it immediately points to the partiality that can lead to more truth. And so that's what I tried to do. Yep. It hasn't ingratiated me in the integral community, but that's okay. I've got to do my duty and well, critiquing. It has with me, and, and, and you know, and I'm Will Berrien all the way. I mean, sure. I, 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 I got a, you know, transmission from Ken right. that is, you know, beyond sort of words and thought I in a way. So, so that I, my heart, I, my I heart is there. I've well, let, let me just finish. I, I, and, 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 um, and so, you know, that's my home, but you know, my conversations with you that have contradicted or where you differ with Ken have been very also illuminating. And, um, and I've learned, um, you know, I've learned a lot from that tension. And uh, my strategy has been to believe the last one of you I talked to. <laughs> well, and so let me just say what I was saying before, just to affirm that I've learned a lot from Wilbur that when, I'm, when I get it right, I'm staying on Wilbur's shoulders. I have great respect for him, um, but I'm not a Wilburian. You know, I, I don't, not just because we have different belief systems spiritually, but also you know, in, in some important ways that I differ from him. Those critiques are made primarily in integral consciousness, but I also talk about where I differ from him in the presence of the infinite. But again, my goal in talking about the founders of integral philosophy is not to land some huge critiques on Wilbur. And most of the people who have critiqued him have done so in a very mean spirit and a disrespectful way. And I, don't I agree. Count it among them um, because again, Wilbur deserves our respect because he's moved the ball. Yeah. And so you know, I know that um, he is near and dear to your heart, and because you're near and dear to my heart, I'm not going to come on your show and, and critique Wilbur. <laughs> no, fair enough. But but. But in our lineage of integral philosophers, let's do include Steve McIntosh here. And well, just so, you know, without, you know, necessarily, you know, dialectic against Ken or whatever, because there's so much, you, as you say, you agree with and stand at his shoulders. But what piece of the puzzle are you bringing to the party here? Well, um, for one thing, um, I am challenging uh, Ken's uh, teaching regarding the, the stages of evolution um, beyond humanity 
right? So he's got, you know, all these elaborate stages. And I um, think that- Well, they're not beyond humanity though. They're, they're you know, some post-integral stages that, you know, he doesn't really write that much about, honestly. Well, but if consciousness and culture co-evolve together, and there's no cultural structures beyond integral, then it's hard to imagine how you can have consciousness without the culture. You know, maybe some- well, but, but, but the idea is, you I mean, just all, as in, in history, I mean, there have been uh, people who are spiking, there have been people who are, you know, ahead of the game. Uh, the, and I don't think you would disagree with the idea that integral's not the end, there's gonna be post-integral stages of course. Perhaps for a very long time. Better. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so there, there is some, uh, you know, I think reasonable uh, exploration of those stages that we can do. Yes, I think it's worth speculating about. But I also think that um, the, the consciousness can't get too far ahead, maybe two stages ahead. So we could say maybe St. Francis of Assisi had proto-postmodern consciousness. Yeah. Like before the emergence of modernity, you can say Rousseau definitely had um, um, proto-postmodern consciousness. So you can get this harmonics, right? When we start talking about third tier, I just have to balk. I mean, I just can't go there. And so this is not the place or the time frame in which we can really unpack that critique. Um, you know, and in integral consciousness, I mentioned where I differ from Wilbur um, and what I try to add. And, and while uh, Integral Consciousness is truly two books, one is, a, is my own version of an accessible introduction to Integral, and then the second half is my attempt to try to contribute. Evolution's Purpose, my 2012 book, that's more of a straight philosophy book in the, in the lineage of Terre de Chardin. Such a beautiful book. I love that book. Thanks. Thanks. And then um, uh, The Presence of the Infinite. That one is more, it's more theology and cultural observation, although there's some philosophy, you know, informing it. It's not philosophy proper. Um, and, but, but there I, I um, talk about Wilbur's theology a bit and say how I differ from that. Um, and now in this current book that I'm working on, on politics, on integral politics, I'm working on it feverishly. I'm kind of cross-eyed at the moment. <laughs> I'm working on it <laughs> But I hope to have that done uh, before the end of the year, and then it has to be in the publishing uh, um, uh, pipeline. But that one is an attempt to bring um, integral thinking and integral philosophy to bear upon the body of existing political philosophy. You know, thinking about modernity and liberal values and, and you know, where things are going. And, uh, I can't summarize it. But, but that book is also political philosophy. And um, so I hope to make a contribution there. Well, I hope you come back on the Daily Evolver when you get that thing done. Great. Well, I hope and to come tell us about back. It. I mean, it'll have to be out there for a while. But, uh, um, you know, the Institute for Cultural Evolution, I mean, I'm continuing to write and think there. But for the moment, I'm kind of in the writer's cave. So I appreciate you getting me to come out of the cave. You know, eyes blinking. Yeah, I appreciate you coming out of the cave. <laughs> and to talk to you a bit. Yeah. And, um, you know, look forward to obviously um, being uh, on this wonderful program, The Daily Evolver, uh, you know, frequently because it's great and I want to support it any way I can. Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, just again, laying out this lineage of thought that has sort of, you know, you can look at it as under its own power through these people has just continued to unfold and flourish and bring us to where we are and situate us. And, you know, we could see how we're actually moving it forward and it's moving us forward. And um, I love
every time I hear the story, it's like, tell me again, Steve, <laughs> you know, every time I hear it, I get, a, you know, a, a sort of a better download and I appreciate it. I'm sure That's, my listeners well, it's, it's fun to talk about and it's especially fun to talk about with you. So I'm glad we can broach the subject and there's more. Yeah, more to come. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Steve McIntosh. And we'll see you next time on the Daily Evolver.